you have your Bibles, please turn in them to Malachi. We will be reading the last verse of chapter 2, verse 17, and we'll go all the way to verse 5 of chapter 3. The text is also printed for you on pages 5 and 6 in the bulletin. Malachi 2:17 through 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated, and let us together go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you are the God of justice. And as we look at our world, all we see is evil and wickedness and injustice. And as Kevin prayed earlier, we do cry out, how long, O Lord? And God, this text reminds us that your justice still stands, that you promised to bring it, and that in essence you have brought it already in Christ. Would you open our eyes this morning to see? Would we listen well by your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. What is your response when you see sin, evil, wickedness in the world? I ask this question for two reasons. First, because sin, evil, injustice, wickedness are inescapable. We see them every day. Take this past week, for instance. The stories coming out of Afghanistan are truly heartbreaking. The accounts of the evil that is facing our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as countless other men, women, and children, some of them, I'll be honest, are hard to read. And then you have Haiti, where after a devastating seven-plus earthquake hit the country, there are gangs who are refusing and keeping the necessary supplies from getting to those who have been most devastated by this earthquake. And I could go on about stories in both foreign lands and our own land. And that won't even address some of the evil that we witness daily in scenarios that are close proximity to us. But the second reason I ask is because there will always be a response when we see evil, wickedness, and sin in the world. Some of them are good. Others, possibly the majority, are often bad. And our text this morning provides us with Israel's response to the evil that they see. And I'll put it out for you, it's not good. They weary God with accusations of him failing to uphold and to administer his justice. 
They say this, everyone who does evil, this is what they're saying the Lord says, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. And then they answer that question at the end of the verse, where is the God of justice? The people doubt God and his character. They reveal their heart of unbelief as well as their continued faithlessness. Now please don't get me wrong, Israel did suffer wickedness and evil at the hands of the Babylonians and now under the Persian rule. The Persians were known for their brutality and their evil. They were experts at it. So their questions in and of themselves were not wrong. But what was wrong was the heart that was driving such questions. It revealed the problem with their heart. The people felt disillusioned. Since returning to the promised land, they had become cynical. And they wandered now into unbelief. And as we've seen, their unbelief eventually bore the fruit of moral corruptness. The return from exile had not been what they had hoped for. It didn't meet their expectations or align with what they thought God had promised. God had not visited his temple. God had not destroyed their enemies. They still were under them. And so it is in this spirit that the people weary the Lord with their questions. They ask void of faith. They ask while spiritually blind, and this is the most pressing point, spiritually blind to their own guilt. They're convinced that the problem with sin and evil is out there, and it's not their problem. They're convinced that justice is only for the nations, it's not for them. And so because of that, they're convinced that God has not been faithful as the God of justice. And the prophet Malachi comes to correct the minds and the hearts of his people. To tell them that justice has not been abandoned. That the promise still holds. The people can and should expect the justice of God to come. For as God says, he himself is bringing it with him. He's coming with justice in hand. And so the main point for us to hear this morning is that the Lord is faithful to bring justice according to his promises. And we can all use that same correction today, for we too, as I began our sermon with, grapple with the justice of God in the world. And we too can be prone to doubt, to disbelief, especially when his justice may not fit our expectations. And we can also, like Israel, be prone to look and only see the sin and the evil out there while ignoring the sin and the evil that is in with, within our own hearts. Without understanding that we are active contributors to the sin, the evil, and the wickedness of this world. The outline is printed there for you in the bulletins. Three points to highlight the Lord's promise of justice. First, the God of justice will come. Second, God will purify. And third, God will punish. We begin with the God of justice will come in verses 17 through 1 of chapter 3. The Lord directly comes and speaks to the challenge offered by his people. He says, I am the God of justice and I'm coming with it. How exciting this would be for the people. Their hopes and their dreams for justice is coming true. Their enemies are going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be glorious. They would be fully restored because God's coming with his justice. Or not. 
You get the picture here of a child who rips open a beautifully rapid, wrapped package, and inside he thinks it's a massive toy, and all it is is clothes. Disappointment. What should have brought delight, just the fact that God is coming with us, God with us, the people grumble because it's not going to look anything like the picture they had painted. Because first off, we see it's going to be preceded by somebody else, a forerunner, if you will. Look at verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. We know a messenger by nature is someone who carries a message. He has a word that's been given to him for a specific purpose, for a specific people, and he's meant to take that message where it needs to go. And God makes it clear, the point of this message is to prepare the way. This word prepare, it means, it has two meanings and both apply. Generally, it means to turn away. This messenger would come and turn his people away, preferably from sin to God. But secondly, it also means to make clear. To lay the ground flat, to remove any and all obstacles so that something can come along. In this case, the Lord himself. This messenger would prepare the road for the arrival of the Lord coming with his justice. And already this would seem a little bit odd according to the people's understanding. Why is a messenger needed if God's coming to destroy the nations, to bring his justice, and to restore us to our rightful place? Can't God do this on his own? Why a messenger? Thankfully for most of us here, we know that this passage points forward to John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus Christ. We read his mission earlier from Mark chapter 1, proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist, as we look in the Gospels, he came preaching repentance to the people of God. He came to those who thought that God's justice only applied to others and said, no, guess what, it applies to you too. You deserve judgment. You need to turn from your sin. And so he came to show them their sin. Because the justice of God demanded that sin needed to be dealt with. But secondly, in addition to a messenger, the Lord also promises his own arrival. Not simply the forerunner. Listen to what he says. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is what the people wanted. He says it's the one you seek, the one you delight in. And in this verse, we get our first glimpse in Malachi of some of the messianic longings of the people. That God would come, that he would be with his people, that he would bring deliverance, that he would bring judgment. And seeing also this this phrase, messenger of the covenant, is also presenting that this, this, the Lord who was coming to visit was going to be bringing in that new covenant promised from the prophets Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And again, this should have been exciting news. The Lord saying, I'm coming, should have led rejoicing out of the people. Because his justice still stands, he is coming. He has not forsaken it. But notice where he comes first. He says he's coming to the temple. 
That's a little bit of an odd location if he's coming to destroy the nations. Why would he come to the temple? Why wouldn't he go to the mountain? It says where judgment's going to occur first by coming to the temple. And also the word suddenly adds a little bit of gray to what the Israelites were thinking were blue skies. A little rain to their sun. Suddenness in scripture, particularly the Old Testament, is rarely a positive. Babylon's demise in Isaiah 47 was promised to happen suddenly. And we see that in the book of Daniel. And in Isaiah 48 and Jeremiah 4, the prophets point back to Israel's judgment at the hand of Babylon and says it came suddenly. And then on top of that, in verse 1, the Lord asks this question, Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? It's a daunting question. And the obvious answer is no one. No one is strong enough to stand. No one is able to avoid or to hide from God coming. And this day of the Lord that is spoken, the rest of the prophets would speak much about it, calling it a day of darkness, a day of humiliation. And so we see that the the arrival of the God of justice, which the people were asking for, no longer seems like this joyous event that they were hoping. Because it's now become clear that they are the targets of his justice. And again, we know that Malachi is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus would come to his temple suddenly and clear it in righteous judgment for the abuses and the idolatry taking place in the temple. Jesus would come as the high priest who would usher in a better covenant, as Hebrews 8 says. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus' coming was far from what the people were expecting. They ultimately rejected him because he did not align with what they anticipated. And we also know from the rest of the testimony of the New Testament that his second coming, the day of his coming, will also be not what many are expecting, if they're expecting it at all. But we see the justice of God stands regardless. It comes in spite of, despite human expectations. Because God is the God of justice. So we need not fear or doubt like Israel. Because his justice is true. We can be patient because it has already come in Christ. And it will come fully and finally with his return and we can bank on that. However, we also must not expect or demand that his justice match our own definitions or our own senses or our own expectations. And that is probably most of our issue today. We need humility. That God is the one who defines justice, not us. And we need to trust that his justice is far better than our own. Because it is defined and established by him as the God of justice. But as we continue, notice though, Malachi also provides two pictures, these next two points, of what God's justice will look like. And the first we see in verses 2 and 4, God is going to purify. And if anything, our work so far in the book of Malachi has proved just how bad of a shape the people of Israel are in. Their worship is a disgrace. Their priests are a disaster. The people are dysfunctional in all of their relationships, 
as we looked at last week, marriage the most pressing. And probably worst of all, using the words of Psalm 36, which are spoken about the wicked, it says there's no fear of God before their eyes. The eyes of God's people have no fear of their covenant Lord. And so to answer the question, who can stand, Israel clearly can't. They're not going to be able to stand or endure the day of God's coming. Because such standing would require clean hands, a pure heart, as Psalm 24 tells us. Which has become abundantly clear, Israel has neither. So therefore, in justice, God is going to do a work in his people. He's going to purify them. Give them clean hands and a pure heart. So the clean hands and pure heart that they so desperately need. Listen to what he says in verse 3. For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Malachi provides us two pictures of this purifying work. A fuller and a refiner. For those of us unfamiliar, a fuller is a washer or a launderer. Not only were they expected to get the clothes clean, they were also expected to get them white, bleached, bright. And so a fuller had to, had to have an extensive knowledge of what naturally occurring chemicals to use to get these stains out. To bleach the garments, to clean them. They had to be chemists like Tim. For a picture of this, think of my wife at our kitchen countertop working on highlighter stains in a two-year-old's dress when her dad let her play with highlighters relatively unsupervised. She has her gloves on. She's got various soaps lined up on the counters and sprays, and she's got a good deal of, she's got a toothbrush, a new toothbrush that's not used for teeth, and a good deal of sweat on her brow as she's scrubbing these stains. She knows, with a little help from the internet, which soaps work for which types of stains. And then when she's done, the clothes go into the laundry and they come out pretty clean, pretty bright. The Lord is about to do a similar project, a similar work on his people. He's about to get the soaps, the gloves, the toothbrushes, and he's going to get some scrubbing done. He's going to get rid of the stains that they see. He's going to get rid of the stains that they don't see. He's going to get rid of the stains that they don't even want to see. He's going to purify them. And the second picture we see is of a refiner. And this is a picture we're probably more familiar with because it's used throughout the Old Testament. A refiner's job is to purify metal, particularly costly metal. He would do this by exposing the metal to this extreme heat that would cause the metal and the impurities to liquefy. So the metal would sink to the bottom, the impurities would rise to the top, and he could sweep away the impurities, leaving a better form of the metal. What would be left behind would be a more pure, a more valuable, and a more useful metal, primarily gold or silver. Though notice it is interesting, though, that Malachi emphasizes not gold as much as silver in verse 3. It's interesting because we know gold is more valuable, so why would he emphasize a purifier of silver? He does it because at that time, silver was actually more difficult to purify, to refine. Gold was easy. You did it once. Generally speaking, you got most of the impurities out. 
Silver could take as many as four or five or six or seven times to refine. And this is primarily due to the fact that silver and lead are found in the same ore. Again, I'm not so familiar with my chemical compounds, but from what I read, separating lead from silver is not an easy task. It is why David, when describing the purity of the Lord's words in Psalm 12, would say they're like silver refined in a furnace seven times. It takes work. It's hard. And so this combination of a fuller and a refiner depicts this full and complete purification that the people of God are about to undergo. Everything, both inside and out, is going to be purified. It needs to be purified. But this also, these two pictures also reveal it's a severe and a difficult work. There's intense heat, intense pressure, scrubbing, if you will, that's required. And so we get a glimpse that the work of God's justice to purify his people is not going to be easy. It would take time, faithfulness, perseverance. It would take the second person of the Trinity, the messenger of the covenant, to take on flesh so that he might accomplish the law's requirement of perfect obedience. And then in his obedience, his perfect fulfilling of the law, he would go to the cross, as we just sang, to die the death that we should have died for the sins and the stains that defiled us. And it would take his resurrection, leaving the tomb empty, thereby achieving victory over sin and death, evil and wickedness, and claiming his people as his own. Paul writes it this way in Titus 2, 14 through 15. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us for all, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is one side of the justice of God. He is going to. He needs to purify his people. He would refine them for his own glory. And he would do it by pouring out his wrath, not on them, but on his son, Jesus Christ. Thereby justifying, declaring righteous all who would look upon him in faith. And this purifying work continues today. To all who, offer, who all receive Christ and rest in him. It is the work he promises to do by his spirit. So praise the Lord that we who are in Christ have been refined, have been purified. Our sin and our stains have been removed. But Malachi in this section also shows that this refining has a greater purpose and it's true worship. Listen to what he says. He says, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. We've already looked at how the priests have failed way back in chapter 2. Their offerings are polluted. They themselves are polluted. Purification and refinement are needed for true worship to take place amongst God's people. And there was nothing the priests could do to fix the problem because they were the problem. Only a purified priesthood could bring acceptable offerings, could offer what is righteous and good. 
And so the honor of the Lord would once again be upheld, but not through a priestly reformation, but through a priestly transformation. And this transformation would remind people of days gone by, the days of Moses and David, where the people would come together and their offerings would be accepted and they'd be secure and established. And again, we know that in Christ, this kind of true worship from a true priesthood has been fulfilled. We read it in places like Revelation 5, 9 through 10, where the saints sing the song, Worthy is the Lamb, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a a people for God, from every tribe and language, people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So when we gather each and every week, we do not wish that our worship would be true and acceptable. We don't hope that the prayers that we offered will be heard. We have full confidence that God will be glorified in our worship because God has fulfilled the work promised here to purify for himself a true priesthood who will offer true worship. It is in Christ that we come and bring sacrifices of praise and prayer that are truly pleasing to the Lord. And so this then should foster in us joy and humility because God has done what we could not. He has been faithful to his promise to purify for himself his people. And he's done it in the name of justice. His justice has meant our salvation, our justification, and our purification. We are his priests. And in Christ, we are enabled to stand now and worship him and to stand on that day and bow before him as our Lord and our Savior. So we're invited then to worship him as he has enabled us by his purifying work. But then Malachi flips in verse 5 and he changes the picture of God's justice. No longer it will be for purification of his people but it will be judgment, punishment for those who are not. Compare this to the complaint in verse 17. God is about to show that he still has the ability to discern, to distinguish between good and evil. He's not somehow lost it, as the people have accused him. He's going to purify the good. He's going to purify those who turn to him in repentance and in faith. But for those who refuse, those who continue to walk in sin and faithlessness, God is going to bring judgment. To use the the images of the washing and the refining, these represent the impurities and the stains that are going to be removed, removed and destroyed. We see in verse 5 that God is calling sinners to a court date with divine justice. And in this courtroom, God himself says, I will be a swift witness. He says, there's no other witnesses needed. I'm not a lawyer, never was. My familiarity with with courtrooms is based on TV and movies, and TV and movies are always accurate, right? But in a typical case, I think I can confidently say, one witness is never enough to secure a case. You usually need at least two. Probably more. But in this court case, God tells his people he's the only one on the witness stand. And he's going to show up promptly. He's going to demonstrate competence. 
he's going to give testimony against his people. And his testimony is going to be honest, truthful, and condemning. There will be no question after he steps down from the stand. The people are guilty. God is the dream witness of every judge and jury, accountable, reliable, and fair, and true. And what exactly do we see God's going to be a swift witness of? What is he going to execute judgment for? He provides us a list in verse 5, and the summary really just screams out covenant unfaithfulness. Now this list is far from exhaustive. There are a lot of sins and a lot of transgressions that have been left off. It's not meant to be exhaustive. So if you read this list and say, well, I'm not in there, I'm good, go read it again. But it does aptly capture the level of Israel's covenant breaking. It casts a brighter light on the faithlessness that the people confess to have seen in chapter 2. And each of the things listed here are clearly forbidden in the law on multiple occasions. Sorcerers are those who openly and defiantly reject God, his word, and his worship. They break commandments 1, 2, and 3. They choose wickedness over holiness, the father of lies over their spiritual father. Adulterers, as we have seen, they live according to the passions of their flesh, violators of the seventh commandment. They're neither faithful to God or to their spouse. Those who swear falsely are guilty of breaking the ninth commandment. They speak lies formally in court matters and informally in their everyday lives. Those who oppress the hired workers in their wages are those who cheat and steal, thereby violating the eighth commandment. They withhold from people what they're owed or go back on the deals that they've made. They're dishonest. Those who oppress the widow, the fatherless, those who thrust aside the sojourner are those who generally fail the entire second table to love your neighbor as yourself, whoever your neighbor is. And we know from the Old Testament law, these categories represent those in Israelite society who are most vulnerable, those who are most likely to be taken advantage of, those most likely to become victims of evil and injustice. So you throw this whole list together and you get this wide display of the evil, the wickedness, the sin and injustice that's going on in Israel. It's, they're accusing God of ignoring the very things that they are doing and then claiming he's failing justice. And so it makes sense why such a mix requires God's judgment. His patience will not last forever. And so when we get this list, it should confront us. It should call us to repentance because even though we are in Christ, even though God is doing a purifying work in us, there still remains dross, impurities, stains, and sin. And not a day goes by where we don't fail, where God could say to us, you are guilty. And as Tim mentioned earlier, without Christ, we are worthy and deserving of judgment against such sin. So as we read this list, we need to be renewed in our call to love our neighbors as ourselves, whoever our neighbor may be and whatever condition they may find themselves in. But we also should find comfort in the promise of God's judgment against such a list. 
For we have all suffered evil in various ways. And these things, we should rest assured, have not escaped God's eye. He sees it, he knows it, and he promises to draw near and to bring judgment against it. But while this list in verse 5 does scream infidelity, it really boils down to this one overarching reason for God's judgment. We see it at the end of verse 5. And do not fear me, the people, says the Lord of hosts. We've already seen how the fear of the Lord is kind of this theme running through the book of Malachi. It's completely lacking amongst the priests. It's lacking amongst the people. And the fruit of no fear is all of those sins we've just highlighted. A lack of fear is what lies at the bottom of this poisoned well that is the people of God. And this makes sense. As one commentator writes, where no fear of God is, no good is to be expected. And we know this to be true from the witness of Scripture. In places like Romans 1 or the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We know this to be true from the entire witness of human history. When God is not feared, tragedy, suffering, injustice, and chaos abound. And we know this to be true in our own day. Why are evils like those seen in Afghanistan and Haiti playing out? Why are evils like violence, abortion, racism, sex trafficking continuing to plague not only our nation, but every other nation under the face of the sun? It is because such things are the inevitable fruit when God is not feared. Or he is devalued or ignored or disregarded altogether. In his helpful book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, Thaddeus Williams writes about this very thing, and he says, The first commandment, to have no gods before God, is where any authentically Christian vision of justice began, begins. Devalue the original by putting something else in his place, and it's easier to treat the images like garbage. Yes, God is going to judge his image bearers for treating fellow image bearers like garbage. His justice demands such judgment. But greater still, God is going to judge for how his image bearers have treated him in whose image we've been created like garbage. By failing to fear him, to honor him, to worship him. His perfect and holy justice demands such judgment. So for any here who are not united to faith in Christ, the call for you then is to not to simply stop sinning and to start fearing. That's not going to solve your problem. The call is to turn to Christ. To the only place where you can seek shelter. The only place where shelter is promised from God's judgment. In Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Because as Malachi points to, refusing to turn will only lead to sure and swift judgment. To borrow the words of warning, you will not endure, you will not stand. And for those of us who are in Christ, we are also called to turn to Christ. Daily, even moment by moment, because we continue to need his purifying work in and through us. 
We're not perfect. We commit the sins listed here and many not listed. We also need his spirit to instill in us, to renew in us a true fear of the Lord. That puts him first and foremost and worships him and honors him as he is due. And then second, that fear will then lead us to honor those around us who bear his image. Regardless of whether they bear that image with joy or grumbling or submission or defiance. Because we see that in justice, God will judge those who do not fear him. Circling back then to the opening question, what is your response when you see sin and evil and wickedness in the world? I gave two reasons for asking that question, and now I give two reasons from Malachi for where, from the promises to answer that question. First, where do we look? We need to look inward. As much as we want to believe it, we are not simply victims, but active participants in the evil that rages in this world. It doesn't matter if we tell a small lie here, take a glance of something we shouldn't be looking at there, we are contributing to the wickedness of this world. And by taking a look inward, we will see our sin and be driven to Jesus Christ. The one who cleanses us by his blood. The one who has upheld the justice of God in his day. We are forgiven of the many, many, many ways that we fail to fear the Lord and to love our neighbors. But second, we need to look forward. We need to look ahead to the day when Christ will return. When he will draw near all for judgment. For in that day, all people, everywhere, will see and behold the God of justice. And all will fear him. And all evil, sin, injustice, wickedness, will be judged and forever removed. So we can rejoice and look forward to that day, even as we struggle in the days that we're in. The Lord is faithful to bring justice according to his promise. Let us pray. God, you are the God of justice. And that is an encouraging word for us in any day. God, you promise to bring justice. For those who are in Christ, you have brought it in Christ. And we thank you that you have poured out your wrath against our sin on him. And so that we are now your people, your priests who can offer worship to you. But God, may it also give us renewed call to fear you, to honor others. And God, to pray with the saints that you would come, Lord, quickly and bring justice over every square inch of your creation, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.